Our Lord Jesus Christ, thank you so much for the opportunity this morning to come before you and to worship you. You are the center of the universe. You're the center of this church. You're the center of our lives. Lord, we want to hear from you this morning. Speak to us, change us, transform us into your image. Lord, we pray that you would find everything that we say and do this morning to be glorifying to your name. And Lord, as we interact with the Scriptures Lord, I pray that you would draw us to a place that our affections are focused on you, that you become the object of our affection this morning. And so it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you're listening to us uh, on our podcast or our app, welcome. Uh, We're glad that you joined us. I'd like to ask you uh, all to turn in your Bible, whatever version of the Bible you have this morning, turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. If you've got a hard copy of the Bible, if you've got a digital version of the Bible, whatever, just find Mark chapter 2, and I want to just take a moment and reset uh, where we're at in the series. We're in a series in which we're walking through the first half of the Gospel of Mark, uh, which really covers the first three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. Now, uh, when we finish this series, we'll take a little break, and then we'll come back, and we'll get the last half of the Gospel of Mark, and uh, that covers the last eight days of Jesus' life. So the first half of the, bi- first half of the Gospel of Mark, three and a half years of his life. Last half of the Gospel of Mark, eight days of Jesus' life, okay? What we're trying to do in this series is get a first-hand look at the historical Jesus. And as we move through the passage that we're going to look at this morning, I want you to keep this idea at the forefront of your mind. Here it is. Jesus sometimes brings out the worst in people. I want you to keep that at the forefront of your mind. Jesus sometimes brings out the worst in people. Do you realize that? I don't know if you know that. I've heard people often at the end of someone's life, maybe at a funeral or something, they describe the person as a man or a woman who no one ever had anything bad to say about. Well, Jesus wasn't that kind of person. You couldn't have said that about Jesus. Sometimes he brings out the worst in people. Or here's another way to say it. Here's another way. When Jesus is around, all hell breaks loose. That's another way to say it, okay? Or even still, How about this one? You can't be neutral about Jesus. You either love him or you hate him. Never neutral. You either love him or you hate him. Okay, keep those three things, keep those ideas in your mind as we move through this passage. Let's start reading chapter 2, verse 23. I'm going to read the whole passage through uh, this morning. Chapter 2, verse 23, okay? One Sabbath, now, but, I'm sorry, take note of that, Sabbath, okay? If you, if you were Jewish, you would, catch, uh, you would see that. You would take note of that. It would be like a flashing neon sign, okay? So one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some of the heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Verse 25, he answered, have you never read? Now, you know that the Pharisees had to love that. These are guys that are so devoted to the Scriptures that they read them and studied them all all the time. Their whole lives are built around this. And Jesus is saying, have you never read? Oh, they had to be offended by that. Anyway, have you never read what David did when he and his companions, excuse me, were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest... He entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
Another time he went into the synagogue. This is chapter 3 now. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And there it is. Just as I said at the beginning, Jesus' presence brought out the worst in these men. All hell breaks loose in murderous rage, and no one in this passage is neutral about Jesus. The guy that got healed undoubtedly loved him, and the Pharisees clearly hated him. Now, I wonder how, when you saw that last sentence in verse 6, I wonder how that struck you. Because when I first read it, as I was preparing for this talk, it stood out to me uh, like a break in the logic of the passage. Kind of like this. Okay, Think of this, all right? Jeff was so hungry, he jumped in the swimming pool. Now, that doesn't make sense, does it? Like, there's a break in the logic. Jeff was so hungry, he jumped in the swimming pool. Well, that doesn't make sense. In the same way, Jesus healed a crippled man, so the Pharisees plotted to kill him. That doesn't make sense either. What's happened here in this passage that's provoked this illogical response uh, by the Pharisees to Jesus? Okay, I want to explain this to you. I want to, I want to explain to you what's happened here. And I'm going to do it a little differently this morning. I'm going to walk backwards through this passage. And along the way, there are some things you're going to learn about the historical Jesus. You're going to learn, number one, that Jesus is offensive to people. Number two, you're going to learn the kind of people to whom Jesus is offensive. And number three, you're going to learn why he is offensive to them. Okay, so three things. Jesus is offensive to people the kind of people to whom he's offensive, and then why he's offensive to those people, okay? You guys with me? Nod your heads. You sure? You're with me? Everybody, nod your heads. Okay, good. Thank you. Let's start with this one, that Jesus is offensive. Let's start with that first one. Jesus is offensive. In fact, he is so offensive that the Pharisees, verse 6 tells us, are ready to kill him. Now, I suspect that the idea that Jesus uh, is offensive is a very hard reality for at least two generations of people here uh, this morning. To those of you who are younger, like maybe, let's say, 16 to, I don't know, 35. It's kind of a random number, but I'll say that. 16 to 35. You're part of a very sensitive generation. Your sensibilities are finely tuned to anyone who slights or disparages another person or group in any way. And some of that, frankly, is a great correction uh, to the callousness of some of the, pre- of some of the previous generations, mine included. Okay? Some of it's great. Some of it's a great correction. But some of that, frankly, is an overcorrection. Some of that sensibility is an overcorrection. I don't know if any of you guys caught this, but this past week, Jerry Seinfeld was on an ESPN radio show. Anybody hear about this? Okay. Yes, some of you, some of you heard about this. Uh, some of you younger people, what are you doing? Some of the older people in here raised their hands. Some of you old, younger people were like, ah, I've never, I, I didn't hear about it. Do you even know who Jerry Seinfeld is? <laughs> okay. Uh, Seinfeld was on the ESPN radio show, and he mentioned that he doesn't play college campuses anymore because he said college students are too sensitive and they get offended too easily. 
And if you're part of that generation, uh, it, it may be very hard for you to accept the fact that Jesus doesn't care if you or your friends or all of social media get your sensibilities offended by the things he says. He just doesn't care. He says them anyway, and it's up to you to deal with it. Okay? Now, for those of you who are part of an older generation, um, many of you grew up with uh, the notion in, in your generation that Christianity was always supposed to be nice. Like that was sort of the apex of, of uh, Christian behavior, that you're always supposed to be, to be nice. Sean talked about this a few weeks ago, uh, that the sentiment of your generation was that it's not polite to talk about politics or sex or religion or anything like that because that's not nice. It gets people riled up. It causes division. So it's not polite. It's not nice to offend people. And again, what I want you to understand too is that Jesus isn't concerned at all about abiding by your social sensibilities, at least not that particular social sensibility. Okay? He just says what he needs to say and it's up to you to deal with it or not but he's not going to change. He's not going to not say things because it might offend you. Okay? Over and over, I think you see this throughout the New Testament. You see this with, with Jesus. Some people are drawn to him, and some people are scandalized by him. Some people are amazed by him, and some, sometimes those very same people who are amazed by him are also scared to death of Jesus. And then some, as in this passage, uh, plot to kill him. And this is what I meant when I said earlier that you can't be neutral about the historical Jesus. When you encounter the historical Jesus, you always get knocked off dead center. Okay? You get exercised about him one way uh, or another. And I want to challenge those of you this morning who feel ambivalent about Jesus. Okay? I want to challenge you because I think that's an intellectually untenable position to be ambivalent about Jesus. Some of you came here on the arm of a friend this morning, or maybe you're here just because you think it's good for your family uh, to just, you know, get some, uh, some religion. On the other hand, there are people here who have been, maybe you've been a follower of Christ for many years, um, but you find yourself this morning feeling somewhat ambivalent uh, about Christ. And I just want to challenge you to take a good, close look at the historical Jesus. Maybe you do it, maybe, maybe you could make that uh, like a summer project. I mean, you could, don't get me wrong. You could spend the rest of your life looking at the historical Jesus and be amazed and all that. But, but maybe just this summer. Maybe you just make that a project. You're just going to go through the Gospels. Maybe you just follow along very closely through the Gospel of Mark as we, as we go through this. But, but take some time. Have the courage to take a good, close look at the historical Jesus. Invest some time in that. To just look at some of the things he says and some of the things he does in the Gospel. And Allow yourself, as you do this, to be intimidated by Jesus. And allow yourself to be offended by him. And maybe even to be threatened by him. And I will warn you that if you do this, if you invest that time, I'm going to just tell you right off that you absolutely run the risk of becoming an enemy of Jesus if you do this. But you might also become a passionate follower of Jesus. Because here's the thing. It is very difficult to really be moved by Jesus' beauty, by his comfort, by his glory, unless you wrestle with Jesus. Because here's the thing. When Jesus shows up, people get worked up. One way or another. When he, when he shows up, people get worked up. And so it's worth your time. It's worth your time to spend some time understanding who he is. 
Because if you're ambivalent this morning about him, it's just an intellectually untenable position. Invest some time in that. Okay. Jesus is offensive. Okay? We've seen that. That's what we've been talking about. He's offensive to some people. Okay? Now let's take a look at the second thing that we said we'd talk about, and that is the kind of people who get offended by Jesus. What are the kind of people that get offended by Jesus? Okay, look back at verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6. Remember, we're walking through this passage kind of backwards this morning. Chapter 3, verse 6. I want you to notice that the text says this. It says, The Pharisees went out, and they began to plot with the Herodians. Now, the, who, who were these people? The Pharisees and the Herodians. Well, a lot of you know, you've probably heard about the Pharisees before, but uh, they were Jewish religious leaders. Okay? They believed that obeying the law of God was the most important task in life, and their whole lives were built around that. And because they were so concerned about this, they put all sorts of boundaries around themselves to separate themselves from immoral people and even, uh, even non-Jewish people because they were very nationalistic, okay? They didn't believe that the Roman authority over them, uh, over Israel at the time, whose name was Herod, they didn't believe that he had any right to be their authority. They believed in traditionalism. They believed in obeying the Bible. They believed in being good. They believed in living in a way that was distinctly Jewish. Okay, that's the Pharisees. Okay, that's the Pharisees. Now, the Herodians, who were these people? Okay, these people, okay, now, now just hang with me. I know this is like a little historical stuff that you're kind of, right now in your mind, you're thinking, well, what am I going to have for lunch? And what am I, am I going to mow the yard this afternoon? What am I going to do? Stick with me through this because it's going to pay off, okay? It's going to pay off, right? The Herodians were also Jewish, okay? But they were Jewish people who were supporters of Herod. The Pharisees didn't like Herod. The Herodians were supporters of Herod. Okay? Where the Pharisees were very conservative and religious and nationalistic, the Herodians were more liberal. Okay? They were more accepting of the liberal Greek culture that the Romans brought with them uh, wherever they went. And the Herodians were people that just, they were Jewish people who just wanted to maintain the social and political status quo. And so they supported the secular reign of Herod. So think of it this way. Here's where it's going to pay off. Okay, think of it this way. The Pharisees were the conservative resistance movement, and the Herodians were the more liberal, progressive thinkers, more secular, less nationalistic. Or you could think of it like this, that the Pharisees were the red states, and the Herodians were the blue states. Okay? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. So the Pharisees were the red states, and the Herodians were the blue states. So here's what you have, and write this down, okay, as an answer to the question, who does Jesus offend? All right? Write this down somewhere. Jesus offends both the conservative and the liberal. The religious and the irreligious. Okay, let me say it again. Jesus offends both the conservative and the liberal, the religious and the irreligious. Both groups. Now, I want you to consider that. I want you to think about this, okay? I want you to think about this. These are two groups who virtually never agree and never work together. But now they come together in their hatred of Jesus and they plot together how they might kill him. This is one of the main themes of the Bible. And and it's one that we repeat here at City Church very frequently. And and it's just this. It's, It's that the gospel of Jesus Christ is neither religion nor irreligion. It's neither moralism nor relativism. It's not traditional moral values, nor is the gospel 
do whatever you feel is good for you either. Okay? It's neither of those things. Both of these groups are getting together to plot to kill Jesus because the gospel of Jesus offends both of them. So hear this now. I want you to hear this. Okay? If you equate Christianity with any particular political ideology, now I'm, I'm going to preach. And this is, I'm, I, know, I, am, I know I am treading on some thin ice here with some of you. But I'm going to say it anyway because I'm like Jesus. I don't care if you get mad at me or not. I'm just going to say it, okay? If you equate Christianity with any particular political ideology, you are wrong to do so. The gospel is neither conservative nor liberal. It's something else entirely. Okay? I want you to understand that. Okay? So Jesus is offensive to people. The kind of people that Jesus offends are both conservative and liberal. Both religious and irreligious. Jesus offends them all. Okay? Now, what I want to do now is I want to move to the very last question that we said that we were going to ask and answer. Okay? This is the last thing. And this is, this is really the heart of what I wanted to say uh, to, today and what I think, more importantly, what I think the passage wants to say to us today. Here's, here's the question. Why is Jesus so offensive to both the religious and the irreligious, the conservative and the liberal, to the red state people and the blue state people? Why is he so offensive to all of them? Think first about the Herodians. Okay? Liberal Jews more accepting of the secular relativistic culture that the Romans promoted. It was really Greek culture, but the Romans brought that wherever they went. Okay? And, and the idea there being, you know, do whatever you want. You decide what's right, what's wrong for yourself. Okay? Here's the thing. Here's why they get offended by this. Who wants a holy man speaking with power and authority and wisdom and credibility telling them, you can't build a sustainable society on a morally relativistic platform. You, you can't do that. Um, who wants a holy man coming along and speaking with all of that power and wisdom and credibility and authority and saying, let me tell you the bad news of the gospel. You are sinners. And oh, by the way, I'm the only rightful king over the Jews and I'm the only rightful king over the whole universe to boot. What, rel- what relativistic, individualistic person wants to hear that? And what Herodian wanted to hear, who just wants the status quo, who just doesn't want any more fighting, doesn't want any more war, doesn't, just wants peace, right? They just want to get along. They just want to do their thing. They just want to live their life quietly. They don't want any problems. They don't want any trouble. What Herodian wanted to hear that kind of challenge to Herod's authority? See, the, the Herodians hated Jesus because of the bad news of the gospel that you're a sinner. That's, that's why they hated Jesus. Okay. Now, what about the Pharisees? Okay. Why is he so offensive to the red state people, the conservatives, the moral, the Bible-obeying religious people? Because they would have loved what he was telling the Herodians. They would have loved it. Yeah, you preach it, brother. Preach it. They're sinners, and you know, they're wrong, and they're in sin, and blah, blah, blah. They would have loved that. Why are the Pharisees, though, plotting to kill Jesus in this passage? Well, it revolves around what Jesus says about the Sabbath in these two um, accounts that Mark tells us about and juxtaposes them against one another. Okay? 
In the first story, in the first account, you have the Pharisees acting like, uh, they're kind of like spiritual policemen. They're upset about the fact that Jesus' disciples pick some of the grain as they walk through the grain fields on the Sabbath, which makes me wonder, by the way, how in the world they just happen to be there to see this uh, at the moment that it was happening. I don't know. Listen, I kind of wonder sometimes why uh, why real policemen are hiding around the corner just as I happen to be speeding by. So I don't know. Maybe that's what their job was. Maybe it was just always to hide in the grain fields, see if somebody picked grain. I don't know. But that's what they're upset about, okay? And in the second account, they're upset about the fact that Jesus heals a man's withered hand on the Sabbath. When the Pharisees ask him about all of this in the first account, Jesus says something that it, it will literally turn your world upside down if you will hear it, okay? He says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he says, so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Okay. What does that mean? It means that the Pharisees had the whole Sabbath thing upside down. Okay. They, they were just completely upside down in their understanding of the Sabbath and really all of, all of the law. Okay. The Pharisees saw the Sabbath as a way to earn God's favor. Okay. It's like they saw it as some high watermark of spirituality that God uh, had come up with. That, like, if you can obey the Sabbath, this is the high watermark. If you can obey the Sabbath, then you're truly spiritual, and you will earn my favor, and you will be saved, and you will be blessed as a result of that. And by the way, this is at the heart. That same idea is at the heart of every world religion, every one of them. Here it is. If I believe and if I follow the rules, in other words, if I believe and obey... The God I believe in, the God that I believe in owes me. I will be saved. I should be saved. And I should be blessed because of my obedience. That's, that's behind every religion in the world. And, and you see, the reason that religion is so popular is that religion puts us in the driver's seat uh, with God. It gives us a claim uh, on God. And it, it gives us a way also to feel superior uh, to other people who don't live up to that high watermark of spirituality that God has set. But when Jesus says this, when he says, look, you know, the Sabbath was made for man, not man uh, for the Sabbath. When he says that, he strikes a dagger in the heart of religion, okay? When he says, when he says man wasn't made for the Sabbath, what he's saying to the Pharisees is, is this. Uh, he's saying, you knuckleheads, that's in the Greek translation. He says, you knuckleheads, the Sabbath isn't some high watermark of spirituality, The Sabbath was a gift that God gave to humanity. The Sabbath Sabbath was made for man. It was like like God's gift to humanity. Now, I want you to notice that when Jesus says that, he's not diminishing the importance of the Sabbath. Rather, he affirms affirms it when he says that. He's 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 saying, look, God gave this to you as a gift because man does need a rest from labor. You need some limitations on your work so that you won't overdo it. You need that. You need rest. Okay? But what he's saying is that he's saying since it was a gift from God to help human beings thrive, by all means, if you're hungry on the Sabbath and you have to pick some grain to eat so that you could thrive, do it. 
And if you can help a brother out, like, you know, like, like healing his hand on the Sabbath so that he can thrive, so that he can have a job, so that he can work with his hands, especially in an agrarian economy, you know, he says, by all means, you should do that. Because that's consistent with the spirit behind the Sabbath, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? That the Sabbath was God's gift to humanity to help humanity thrive. And so he's saying, he's saying, look, you know, if they got to pick grain to eat, to thrive, then do that. If you can heal somebody on the Sabbath, do that. That's, that's good. That's consistent with the spirit behind the Sabbath. Now that in and of itself angers the Pharisees, as you can imagine, because to tell them that they, the, the, the religious leaders of the Sabbath, had it all wrong, I mean, this, I mean that, that blows their categories. But it's the other part. It's the other part of what Jesus says that really drives them to murderous rage when he says, So, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, to understand that, you really need to know that there are two ideas encapsulated in the Sabbath. Okay? At one level, the Sabbath was a gift from God to help man find rest from physical work, okay? But underneath the idea of physical work, God also wanted man to rest from the desperate weariness of trying to work for, to earn God's favor and his blessing. You see, see, this is the terrible underbelly of religion that no one ever talks about. And it's that if you have to earn God's favor and blessing and salvation, you live your life constantly anxious, constantly worried, constantly feeling guilty, constantly feeling shameful. Because you never know if you've done enough. You can never be certain about anything. And then when something, here's what happens. When something bad happens to you, if you're, like, if you're, if you're, if, if you're like a very religious person and, and you're involved in a religion, if something bad happens to you, what happens? You're convinced that it's God's punishment for some sin in your life, aren't you? Right? It's a terrible way to live. And sadly, it's the way that many Christians live. God wanted man to find rest from that. And so when Jesus says that the Son of Man, that's a name that he has for himself. He, in fact, it's one of his favorite names for himself. He's calling call himself the Son of Man. He's identifying with humanity and calling himself that. He says, he, says, he says, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. What he's saying when he says that was not only did I create the Sabbath, that's his Lordness, but he's also saying I'm the fulfillment of the Sabbath. I have fulfilled all of the law. I'm what the Sabbath and all of the law was pointing to. I'm the Sabbath personified. And you see, that's the good news of the gospel. Here's here's the gospel. The gospel is this. When you stop working for your salvation, when you stop the desperate and weary attempt to earn God's favor and to put some claim on him, And when you finally just believe in Jesus, who is the Sabbath, and who on the cross, uh, one of his last words, his dying words, was, it is finished. When you just rest in him and believe in Jesus, and understand that all of the work that needed to be done to secure God's favor on his people and on your life has been done by Jesus, 
When you believe that, that's the gospel. And it's what Jesus meant in the, in the gospel of Matthew when he said, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, he said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, all of you who live with guilt, all of you who live with shame, all of you who are constantly worried about whether you've done enough, all of you who feel like you can't stop, that you just got to keep going, and you got to keep doing, you got to keep serving, and you can never say no to anybody because you're scared to death that you might not have done enough to get into heaven, to be blessed by God, all of you who are worried that anything that bad happens to you is God's punishment on your life, all of you who are living with that that just bogs you down, that makes you weary at the end of the day, come to me. And I'll give you spiritual and emotional and psychological rest. Take a deep breath. If you come to me, Jesus says, if you believe in me, if you would rest in grace, then you will find this Sabbath is for you instead of you for it. And then you'll find on the day of worship, you go to worship to rejoice in the one who saved you. Not to earn salvation, not to make a claim on God, not to work your way in, not anxiously and with a sense of obligation, but thankfully, passionately, worshipfully. That's how you'll, that's how you'll honor the Sabbath. And so I want you to write this down as the answer to the question of why Jesus offended both the liberal and the conservative, the religious and the irreligious. Write this down, okay? The irreligious liberal is offended by the bad news of the gospel, while the religious conservative is offended by the good news of the gospel. Okay, I'll say that again. The irreligious liberal is offended by the bad news of the gospel, while the religious conservative is offended by the good news of the gospel. Now, let me, here's, here's what I mean by that. The bad news of the gospel is you're a sinner, you need Christ. And the Herodians hated that, okay? The good news of the gospel is you can't earn your salvation, so believe in Jesus, okay? He's done all the work necessary for you to be accepted and blessed by God. Now, the Pharisees hated that because it left them with no room for boasting, about themselves, and it left them with no room to feel self-righteous about anybody else. And so you see, both groups of people are offended by Jesus because the gospel is neither liberal nor conservative. And I want to tell you, here's what troubles me about all of this. There are many people in, church, uh, in churches today uh, throughout Evansville and throughout every city in America and probably every place all around the world who do not experience the spiritual and emotional and psychological rest that the gospel provides them. That troubles me. That they're still weary and burdened and frankly self-righteous and prideful. I think I've, I think I've said this to you guys before. I think I've mentioned this before. But uh, because of the nature of my work and the sheer just <laughs> volume of people that uh, that volume of Christians that we have dealt with uh, in different places around the country. Amy and I have come to be able to spot pretty quickly people who we call, and this is a very, uh, this is a very uh, intellectual title that we call these people. We call them scary Christians, okay? We've learned to be able to identify scary Christians very quickly, okay? Let me, let me tell you who scary Christians are. These are the people 
who do all the right things and they stay away from all the wrong things, but you get the sense when you're with them that you better agree with them on the right things and the wrong things or they're going to turn on you uh, very quickly. And when I say turn on you, I mean they will turn on you like very quickly, okay? They tend to be very quick to draw battle lines and they're very easy people to offend. And I find myself, when I'm around these people, I find myself wanting to get away from them because I'm pretty sure I'm going to offend them without even trying to offend them. Okay? And this is, this is why, just because, like if I, you know, if I go someplace and I hear people talking about, oh, he or she is a you know, super strong, committed Christian, whatever, um, it doesn't necessarily mean anything to me. Because, you see, you can have two people who do the same things but they do it with very different motives. So like this, you could have one person who says, you know on Sundays, I close my business to honor the principle of the Sabbath. But if you hang with him for a little bit, you might find that all of that is about spiritual pride and self-righteousness. He might even be angry at people who don't close their business on Sunday, perhaps because inside he really wants to work on Sundays and he hates the fact that other people are getting ahead of him. And he might be quick to point out that if you don't close your business on uh, the Sabbath, that you're not being a very good Christian. And you see, he believes, that guy believes, that man is made for the Sabbath. He might believe in Christ, but he's living religion, not the gospel. Okay. On the other hand, though, there could be another person who might also close his business on Sundays, but he doesn't really make a big deal out of it. He doesn't do it because he has to. He doesn't do it out of obligation. He's not doing it because he's trying to curry God's favor, but he just does it because he, he wants to. And it frankly doesn't make him a hill of beans a difference if you do or don't do that. He's doing it just because he wants to joyfully worship Christ and honor the deepest idea of the Sabbath, that Jesus is the Sabbath rest for his people. That guy is living out the gospel. Two, two people doing the same thing but one is doing it from one perspective, and one is doing it from a completely different perspective, okay? One's a scary Christian, one's a joyful Christian, okay? And sadly, i got to tell you something. I have met fewer of the joyful Christians in my experience. In 25 years of ministry, I have met fewer of the joyful Christians than I have the scary Christians. And sadly, I think the rest of America has seen fewer of the joyful Christians than they have the scary Christians. Do you know what might be the most ironic thing about this whole passage? Verse 6. The Pharisees are mad at the disciples for picking grain, and they're mad at Jesus for healing a man's hand on the Sabbath. And all the while, they're planning a murder on the Sabbath. Hashtag irony of ironies. Right? Right? Let me close with our vision statement this morning. Our vision statement says that we want to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond through a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now look, if we're going to do that, if we're going to accomplish that, it has to be that we're being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, not by religion, but by the scandalous gospel of Jesus Christ. Now listen, if you're ambivalent about Jesus this morning, 
You're in an intellectually untenable place this morning. If you would allow yourself to see the historical Jesus, you will find that you will either love him or you will hate him. And I want to challenge you again as we close this. I just want to challenge you with this. Risk seeing him for who he is. And you might be offended and you might hate him. But you also might be offended and love him. But I can promise you one thing. You will not be ambivalent about him.